Good day again, everyone. Keep your Bibles there. At, uh, flick back to chapter 6. That's where we'll be beginning, but I'll pray as we get underway. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, all that we've been learning in these studies in Genesis so far. We thank you for the wonderful picture we have of you and your love and your grace. Uh, but we thank you also for the realistic picture we get of ourselves in these chapters and the reality of our sin uh, and also the reality of your righteous judgment. So as we turn to this very dark part of the story this morning, we pray that you'll help us to understand it correctly, uh, but in particular we pray that it will help us to understand ourselves and you better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today uh, we come to one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Noah and the Ark, as we just had read a couple of the sections of it. Uh, and I'm always amazed how this is such a popular children's story. When, uh, when my kids were little... I lost count, actually, the number of children's versions we had of Noah and the Ark. I went around searching for them on their bookshelves. They're not there anymore because Victoria has probably given them to you and probably they're on your children's bookshelves now. But uh, every one of them, if I remember rightly, had lovely little pictures of pairs of animals, always cute little bunny rabbits, always elephants, always tigers, all the good animals were there. Uh, I remember my kids playing with a, a Fisher-Price or a, uh, a Playmobil Ark. And again, I went looking for it, but it's gone missing. It's not that one, but that's the best one I could find, the one on the screen there. And you notice how it's all so cute? And they're cute animals. See the little giraffes and the little elephants? They're also always, the animals are always out of proportion. The elephant's the same size as the rabbit. But anyway, that's, that's just my thing. But th this is a children's Bible, children's toy favourite. And that is all wonderful. I mean, it's better to be playing with toys that teach you the Bible than, than other things, I'm sure. But when you read the actual Bible story, and we just read two little segments of it before, this is not a cute story. Uh, this is not a children's bedtime special. If you read the actual Bible version to your preschool child before bed, they will be having nightmares. It's actually a horrible story. This is as dark as it gets in the Bible. This is the story of human sin at its absolute worst, and it's the story of God's righteous judgment at its most awesome, uh, in the true sense of that word, awesome. Uh, now, I've never watched Russell Crowe's movie about Noah. I decided I could watch the two-minute preview this week. That's all I had time for, and I, that, just, that decided me that I didn't need to watch the full version. And uh, I'm sure Russell cannot quite capture the righteousness of uh, Noah. Uh, but just from the preview that I watched, I think that sort of adults-only version of Noah is probably closer to the real thing. That sort of a dark picture, like you see there, is closer to the real thing than any of the children's books. So I just want to stress today, we are looking at the real, unsanitized version of the story of Noah and the Ark. Now, as I said, we read two of the key sections of the story before. Uh, the full story crosses the four chapters from chapter 6 through to chapter 9, so 6, 7, 8 and 9. Uh, and I can't go through every detail of the story today. Uh, and what I would love you to do is go home afterwards and read all of chapter 6 to 9, read the full story of Noah and the Ark, read it all again in the light of the sermon today. And I think you'll find that really, really helpful. Uh, but as I keep saying through these early chapters of Genesis, uh, I want to keep stressing these chapters are history. They're written in the Bible as history, as real events, but richly symbolic. So they're not written in the same way that modern history is written at this point of the Bible, but it is history, it's real, but written in a richly symbolic way. 
uh, and they're written to teach us about ourselves and about our world and about God. So today I'm going to draw out four key lessons, and they're on your outline, four key things that I think we are meant to learn from the story of Noah. The first is about our sin, the second is about the reality of God's righteous judgment, the third is about God's grace, and the fourth is a picture of what true faith looks like. So we're going to start with the problem of human sin. Really important to understand, the story of Noah doesn't come out of nowhere. I think sometimes, because we remember these stories from our children's Bibles, we sort of think, oh, there's the story of Adam and Eve, there's the story of Cain and Abel, there's the story of Noah, and then the story of Babel, and and so on and so forth. You have to remember, and this is why I always stress, do the intro to the Bible course, is you have to remember it's all one story, and it all flows on from what's happened before. And when you actually read from chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis, and you get to chapter 6, you realise that this is the end of a downward spiral that has been happening since the sin of Adam. So remember a few weeks ago, we were back in Genesis chapter 3, we had the sin of Adam. What we're seeing is it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So it starts with Adam disobeying God, refusing to take responsibility. He blames Eve. Eve doesn't take responsibility. She blames the snake and it goes on. But then it gets worse. Cain kills his brother out of jealousy. Then Lamech, a descendant, says, well, I can do better than that. Whatever Cain can do, I can do better. He kills a boy and just boasts about his murderous ways, boasts about his sexual immorality. And that is how sin works. It's really important to understand this. It works that way in individuals. When we tolerate sin, when we start excusing sin in ourselves, it hardens our heart and we actually tolerate other sin and it's like a downward spiral. And it's the same with society. What happens is we start by tolerating sin and then within a few years we're rejoicing in that sin and if you can't see that in what's happened in the last 30 years in Australia as we've moved from seeing things as sin to then saying we'll accept them but but not say they're good to now rejoicing in, in things and saying let's enshrine them in law, that is how sin works. As we sin our heart hardens and it's a spiral down. By the time of Noah It had hit rock bottom. Look with me, chapter 6, verse 5. It says, When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Now understand just how bad this was. We're going to think about the reality of our sin in a minute, but as, as, as sinful as we and our world are now, this is not our world. There is still good in our world. And yes, even our good thoughts and our our good actions are tainted by sin, but in a world impacted by the gospel, there is good. The point here is, at this point, there was no good other than in Noah, as we'll see. Look at how it puts it there in verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. Now, Now we're going to get to God's judgment in a second, but this is actually the first lesson from the story of Noah. So our first point to take away and the lesson is that our sin truly grieves God. Sin is not a little slip up. Sin is not a mistake. When we we sin, it grieves God. And because of that, sin is our biggest problem Uh, and sin is our world's biggest problem. See, now you might think, but didn't God wipe out sin at the flood? Isn't that the point of this story? God wiped out this horrible evil that was our world. And yes, that's true. But the problem was 
God didn't end all of humanity at the flood. Wonderfully, and by his grace, God preserved Noah and preserved his family. But even Noah, who we'll come to in a minute, was a sinner. As I said before, I'd love you to read the rest of the story at home, and in particular chapters 8 and 9, which sort of end the story. And what you see there is even after the flood, when God recreates this, this beautiful world and then promises not to curse the earth again, and the only people there to repopulate God's wonderful earth are the righteous Noah and his family. And just when you think, oh, it's got to be better this time, even at that point, before anything else happened, God gives a damning assessment of the human heart. Turn to chapter 8, verse 21. Here is God promising, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to destroy the world by flood again. I'm never going to curse the earth again. He says, chapter 8, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, not because man's good. He says, because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. So important to understand this, that is the reality of the human heart. We are tainted by sin. I think it actually captures it perfectly there. We have an inclination to evil. We tend towards selfishness. We tend towards godlessness. People try to deny this truth. Our our modern world loves to think people are basically good and the problem is just a lack of education. If we could just educate everyone, they'd be so much better. The, the problem is cultural. If we could just remove people from their peer group, they'd be better and so on. I don't mean to be rude, but it actually takes a genuine effort to be as ignorant as most people in our modern world are. It takes a genuine effort to look at all of history and look at our world. Even this morning, I got up and I turned on the news and there are people firing missiles at each other from Israel and Gaza. It takes a genuine effort to look at our world and say humanity is fundamentally good rather than say what all the evidence shows you which is humanity has an inclination to sin, an inclination to evil. When the checks and the balances are removed, human beings are selfish and human beings hurt one another. Yes, human beings do great good And that is wonderful. There is wonderful good in our world. But even the great good we do is tainted by sin. The Bible's doctrine of sin is just borne out by every time you open the newspaper, every time you turn on the television, every time you spend any time with other people. That's the reality. And to prove that point, that sin is still our biggest problem, and you can read this in chapter 9, Noah gets off the ark and you're ready for the triumphant betterment of humanity and what does Noah do? He sins. He gets drunk and he exposes himself. Sadly he acts like a modern day footy player on the end of season trip basically. That's how I think of Noah and then one of his sons disrespects him and, and sins against his father and the point is even after the greatest act of judgment ever and for that matter the greatest act of salvation up until that point the very people God saves are still sinners. So that's the first lesson of the flood. Our greatest problem is not global warming. Our greatest problem is not the cost of living crisis. It's not the rise of Vladimir Putin. It's not that America seems to be descending into chaos. They are all actually just symptoms of the great fundamental problem, which is our sin, human sin. And our sin is such a problem, this is my next point, because... 
God's patience does not last forever. Go back to Genesis 6. God looks down at the depths of human sin and it's one of those chilling verses in the Bible. Look at verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. In, in these chapters of Genesis, it talks in very human terms about God. I think it purposely speaks about God in a very human way so that you, you understand what's going on. And it uses words like regret and, and repent and so forth. When it says that, it doesn't mean God changed his mind. God does not change his mind. God had his plan for history in place before the creation of the world. So God doesn't change his mind. What it's doing is capturing the reality of just how much human sin grieves God. That's what it's capturing when it uses that word regret. Human sin makes God wish that he had not set out on this course to make humanity at all. And so God says, I'm going to wipe out everything with a great flood. Look at verse 13. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them, therefore I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. And that is exactly what he does. By the end of chapter 7, the earth has been wiped clean. Do you notice as our readers read it before, the repetition in the story? The way it just kept saying it over, and God, and God, and God, and it just repeats, it's just making the point, this is total. This is total devastation, destruction. Uh, now at this point, lots of people get hung up on the question of whether the flood covered the whole earth, like the whole globe, or did it, was it sort of more a localised flood, massive, more massive than any flood we've ever experienced, but just covered the inhabited world of that time? So the Middle East and North Africa and the, the bottom of Europe. I won't go into it, but the language can actually be read either way. So the language can actually... Bible-believing Christians can go either way on that. I, I say it was a flood that covered the whole earth, but I am a simple man, and uh, that's, that's me sort of thing. But Christians can disagree on that. Interestingly, though, other ancient cultures have their versions of the flood story. Uh, and lots of ancient cultures have their version of the flood story. And often they have a hero, and they have an ark, and they have animals in it. Now, cynics who want to say... I you can't believe the Bible. They say that's because they all copied off the one fairy tale. Uh, I think it supports the idea that the different descendants of Noah went out all with their story and over time their stories got corrupted to fit in with their pagan religions. So the Babylonian version has one that has all the gods fighting with each other and all that sort of thing. Uh, I think that's what's happened here. But in the end, as I keep saying through series, I don't overly mind what you think on all those issues. What I do stress is Jesus says the flood happened and Jesus says God used it to judge all of humanity. That's the non-negotiable. Which brings me back to the reason it's here for us. It's written for us to make a theological point, which is that God's patience with our sin does not and will not last forever. So at the end of the story, God promises, no, I'm never going to destroy the world again in this particular way. That the sign of the rainbow, when you see a rainbow in the sky, it's meant to remind you, God has said, I'm never going to destroy the world in this particular way again. But the Bible makes it very clear that God is not going to let human sin go unchecked forever. The Bible says there will be a judgment day where the heavens and the earth will be burnt away. And on that day, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. 
So 2 Peter 3, verses 6 and 7 says, as you read about the flood, it's meant to make you think about a future worse day. If we get chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, it says, through these waters, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The New Testament says what God did at the flood, he will do again in a different way. Jesus draws the same lesson from the story of Noah. So Jesus says, whenever you read your Old Testament and read about the flood, it should make you ask, are you ready for the judgment of God? So look at Matthew 24, verses 37 to 42. It's a longer reading, so follow with me. It says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. See, the point Jesus makes is, think back and you can imagine all the people of Noah's day just walking past his big building project, mocking him. You can imagine them saying, what are you building a boat for? We live in the Middle East. It's a desert everywhere. What are you, what are you doing this for? People will be, Jesus says, well, in the same way, people will be wandering around, living their lives, doing all the things you do, going to work, going to the beach, getting married, doing all those things with no regard for God. People will be walking past church this morning on their way to the beach. Not a nice day for the beach, but, you know, going to the shops, thinking, why are they wasting their time in there? Why do they bother doing that? And then the judgment will come and then it will be too late. Which is, of course, why we must warn people and preach the gospel. Isn't that right? That, I mean, if, if you do not get that from this story, you, you, you are missing the point. Of course, we must warn people. And we're about to come to my final point about how to be ready about how to Jesus will come like a thief in the night and when he does it will be too late don't be found asleep don't be found wandering around living a life that is meaningless for eternity be ready but that brings me to my third point which is even in his judgment God still shows grace even in this darker story in the Bible God is still determined to persevere with humanity and that brings us to Noah and the ark says that of all the people on the earth at that time, there was one person who found favour with God. Look with me, chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Noah, however, found favour in the sight of the Lord. And then verse 9, it says, These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. What does it mean that Noah was righteous and blameless? See, we, we can think that means he was without sin, but no, 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 it doesn't mean that. Noah's sin is actually obvious throughout the story. He is no Jesus. Noah deserves God's judgment just like you do or I do. Noah was righteous because he walked with God. That's actually the key phrase there, because he walked with God. The Bible is really clear. The way you are made right with God, the way I am made right with God is how? By faith alone. And so just what we saw in Romans or in the year, remember? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Well, in the same way, Noah believed God 
and it was credited to him for righteousness. The righteous person is not sinless, but what they are is someone who knows God, owns their own sin and confesses it rather than carrying on unrepentant. And they come to God for mercy and then even if imperfectly, seek to live for God. Everyone else in that world ignored God, despised God. Noah believed, he listened to God, Noah was a man who walked with the Lord. Now that is wonderful, but Noah is not the hero of the story. And this is, this is what's wrong with nearly all the children's Bible versions. They make Noah the hero of the story, but he's not the hero. See, yes, God chooses Noah because he alone walked with the Lord at that time, but God saves people because God decides to save people. God had every right to judge Noah along with everyone else at this point, but instead he decides to show grace to some to save a people for his very own. That's why, if you read the story, it's all God speaking. God warns Noah. God tells Noah exactly what to do. It's not like Noah said, hey, I better get ready and I'll work out a way to save myself. God said, this is what you've got to do. This is what you need. And he says more than that, he doesn't just help him save himself, he helps him save a people. That's why God saves enough people from the family of Noah so that they can repopulate the earth. And the reason he saves the animals is not because God has a particular love for animals, though he does. It's because he wanted to make the world he recreated one worth living in. He's actually, it's all grace. God doesn't have to do all this, but he does it because of his grace. More than that, though, all through the story, it is little gems that show you that God is at work acting to save Noah and his family. Come with me. Chapter 7, verse 16. Look at chapter 7, verse 16. After he explains how they all got onto the ark, there's a beautiful little point at the end of verse 16. It doesn't say, and then Noah pulled up the drawbridge. What does it say? Then the Lord shut them in. See, the picture is, there is God, if you, not that God has a hand, but you know what I'm saying, with his hand saying, I'll keep you safe. You're all in. It's like the, I visualize like the caring parent who puts their child in the safety seat and, and makes sure all the straps are on and makes sure they're all in and then just carefully shuts the door and says, I'm keeping you safe. That's what God does here. Another example, I won't go into the specifics of this. This whole story, though, is beautifully written Hebrew literature. We don't, we don't get it in, in the English as well. And it's all structured to have a high point at chapter 8, verse 1. And so, again, without going into too much of the detail, basically all of the story up to chapter 8, verse 1 sets out the sin and judgment and destruction. And then it uses exactly the same words in reverse order from chapter 8, verse 1 to describe God's salvation and recreation. And so you notice there, if you look at the end of chapter 7, verse 24, it says the water surged on the earth 150 days. But then you go to chapter 8, verse 3, and it says by the end of another 150 days, the waters had decreased. It's, it's all done in parallel like this. If you were reading in the original language to draw your eyes to chapter 8, verse 1. So go to chapter 8, verse 1 now and look at what it says. It says, God remembered Noah. As well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. That word remembered is massive in the Bible. When it says God remembered Noah, it doesn't mean God had forgotten him. It doesn't mean God, hang on, there was something, what did I, 
oh, there's that bloke down there, and I better do... That's not what's going on. The word in the Old Testament always means God decides to act according to his promises. God decides to act according to his faithful love. So when God remembers Abraham, he acts to save him according to his promises. When God remembers the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, he acts to save them because of his promises. When God remembers his people in exile, he acts to bring them back into the promised land because of his promises. God never forgets his promises. And so all of this is to say, yes, God judges sin. That is a massive point of this story. But through his judgment, he is always at work to save a people for his very own. And so in many ways, this story is sort of like the first instalment in the Bible of the story that is going to happen over and over and over again. It's the first instalment of what's going to be repeated over and over again. Humanity sins and sins and sins and humanity more and more deserves God's judgment but God through his grace always remembers his promises and acts to save his people. And so of course what is our ark? How does God save us once and for all from the judgment we deserve? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I talked before about being ready for the judgment day. For Noah, being ready meant getting on that big boat. That's what it meant. Being ready meant getting on the boat. For us, being ready means getting on board with Jesus. That's what it means. It means connecting to Jesus by turning from our sin and trusting in him. And that's actually the most important question, the most important thing, the most important anything anyone ever does. When Christ returns to judge... Will he find you on the ark or will he find you in the floodwaters? That's actually the key question. When Christ returns to judge, will he find you on the ark, connected to Jesus by faith, or will he find you in the waters? Will he find you living for this world or will he find you trusting in him and living for him? That's what it means to be ready. Which leads me to my last point from the story of Noah. Come with me. Uh, Point four, Noah, the example of true faith. I said before, God is the hero of the story, and that is true. God who saves, is God who saves, but Noah is a wonderful example of how you accept God's salvation by faith. The New Testament holds up Noah as one of the heroes of the faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, when it comes up. It says, By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Just think about the faith of Noah for a minute. Just put yourself in Noah's shoes. So God comes to him and he says, I'm going to flood the whole world. Noah looks around and says, there's not a lot of water here. Where's that coming from? God says, I want you to build a massive boat as big as a football stadium. That when you do the measurements, that's what it's like. God says, build a massive boat as big as a football stadium, even though you're hundreds of miles from the ocean. You've got three sons, they'll help you. you know. It took Noah decades to build this ark. Understand that. As you read the story and they tell you the years, it took him decades to build the ark. Noah would have got up every morning and seen the cloudless sky and said, why am I doing this? Because God told me I had to. He would have got up every day and said, it hasn't, it's 25 years now. 
Still no flood. Why am I doing this? And just think about what people would have thought of Noah and said about Noah as they walked past him. They would have mocked him mercilessly. Where's your flood, Noah? It's been 10 years. It's been 20 years. It's been 30 years. Where's your flood? Noah would have been crazy Noah the boat guy. That would have been his name. Wouldn't you have been tempted to give up after five years or 10 years or 20 years? That's why over and over again, the story stresses how Noah's faith showed itself in unwavering obedience to God. Just fly through with me. Go to chapter 6, verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 22. It says, And Noah did this, he did everything that God had commanded him. Then go to chapter 7, verse 5. It says, And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Then chapter 7, verse 9. It says, talking about the animals entering the ark with Noah, and then it says, Just as God had commanded him. Then chapter 7, verse 16, says those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered just as God had commanded him. That line just gets repeated over and over and over again, and it's because that is what faith looks like. Trusting God, obeying God, even when it seems crazy to everyone else. But we do it anyway, just because God says so, and God is faithful. Trusting God, obeying God, despite the mockery of the world, because God says so, and God is faithful. Now, of course, we have so much more reason to trust God than Noah did, don't we? Think about it. What, did, what, did, what reason did Noah have? He had a voice, I assume, from the sky telling him what to do. He had a, a word from the Lord. We know the whole story. We even know the end of the story. We know that Jesus died for our sins. He's risen again. But like Noah, we live by faith. We trust that Jesus has paid for our sins and we trust that Jesus is returning and has a place for us in his new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live for Jesus. But we can start to wonder, can't we? We can start to doubt. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? We, we look at all the other people going to the beach and we say, is it worth it? For we trust God and we keep going because like Noah, we know the alternative. Do you see there in that verse, Hebrews 11 verse 7, do you see how sometimes we like to think that faith always has to come from a positive motivation. What motivated Noah? Godly fear. He said, I know the reality of the judgment of God and so I'm going to trust in the goodness of God. It's not wrong to fear the judgment and so turn to the Lord. You see, we trust God and we keep going because like Noah, we know the alternative, but far more than that, we know the God who loves us. And when the world mocks what you believe, when people laugh at you and say, how can you believe, how can you be a Christian in the modern world? When, when it would be so much easier to just give up and live like everyone else and live for your passions, it's hard to live righteously when the world mocks it, isn't it? It's hard to follow God's way when the world says, just do whatever and it doesn't matter. It's hard to stand up and say to a world that hates the idea of God, I believe in Jesus and you need to believe in Jesus too because he's coming back to judge. And that's why Noah is such a hero of the faith and such an example to us. Look at that verse again. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. My prayer is that people will say something like that about me 
at my funeral. Sorry to be morbid, but you, you know, my, my prayer is that someone will say something like that about me. And my prayer is that someone will say something like that about you as well. By faith, you insert your own name, by faith feel, by faith he trusted in Jesus no matter what they said about him. Wouldn't that be wonderful if people said that about you? By faith, she trusted in Jesus no matter what they said. By faith, she obeyed God and she lived to honour Jesus even when people mocked her. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that's what people said about you? By faith, he persevered. By faith, he kept living God's way even when the world seemed so much more attractive. By faith, Jesus found him ready. That's my prayer for every one of us. I'll pray it now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know the reality of our sin and we know just how much it grieves you. And so we are sorry. We are repentant for our sin. Father, we know the reality of your coming judgment and we pray that we'll be found ready. And Father, we thank you that you have made the way for us to be ready by showing us grace, by sending your Son to be our ark, sending your Son to die for our sins and rise again so that we can know your forgiveness. And so we pray that like Noah, we would be a people of faith. We pray that we will be people who are found who have trusted in Jesus no matter what people said. We pray that we will be people who have persevered and kept living your way, even when people mock it and it doesn't look attractive in our world. By faith, we pray that Jesus will find us ready when he returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.